First Samuel chapter 13, and before I read it, maybe you heard me just make the comments about the first sermon and the second sermon. So many people tend to tune out of the first sermon and then only listen to the second sermon to sit in judgment. What is the first sermon? Well, the first sermon is the reading of God's Word that contains no error. The second sermon is the preaching of God's Word that very well may. So don't tune out of the one that has no error in it for sure, right? Let the Word of God come to you as the voice of God, the voice of Christ to His church. And let Him sit in judgment over you to prepare you for the second sermon so that we can all benefit as God would have us. So 1 Samuel 13, then we'll flip over and read Acts 25, and then come back to 1 Samuel for our sermon. Saul reigned one year, then he had reigned two years over Israel. Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. The Philistines heard of it. Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had become an abomination to the Philistines. And the Philistines were called together, excuse me, and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, and the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. Some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited for seven days, according to the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he, that is Saul, offered the burnt offerings. And it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offerings that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me, that you did not come within the days appointed, that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal. I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Saul, Jonathan his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. The raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to Ophrah, to the land of Shual, 
Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon, and another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. And there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pen, or two-thirds of a shekel, for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Amen. And Psalm, uh, not Psalm, Acts 25 be our next reading here. Our next reading. Acts 25, where Paul appeals to Caesar, his Roman citizenship. Acts 25 says, Now when Festus had come to the province after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul. And they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. When he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea. The next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor... Answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. After some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. 
because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar, to the Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. When I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. One of the most debated words today, one of the words that is the most difficult to get people to agree on a definition of, is the word sin. Sin. Some people say when you do something to hurt someone's feelings that you have sinned. Some people say anytime you don't listen to your boss, you have sinned. Some people say, if you are more of a parent to your child than a friend to your child, you have sinned. And the list goes on and on. Notice what was lacking in those definitions and lacking in so many other definitions. If you talk to anyone who is not a a faithful uh, Christian understanding the Word of God, there is a lack of reference to God. Sin is defined with respect to God. Our catechism gives us a definition of sin. Sin is any want or lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is anything you do against the law of God, whether passively or actively. When you fail to conform to it or when you intentionally deform away from it, that is a sin. But why can't people agree on this? Because people love sin? You could throw any number of answers out there. And I'm sorry to disappoint you this morning out the, out the gate, but this very passage on Saul that we've covered where Samuel tells him that he has sinned, you can't even find too many commentators to agree on what Saul's sin exactly was. But we'll try to do that uh, this morning. Maybe the Lord will give us some light on this today. That God would use it for his own glory and our benefits. Notice the climax of the passage at uh, about halfway through. I'm really only going to preach through the first 14 verses or so. And Lord willing, we'll be able to include the last half of 13 in our uh, sermon next Lord's Day. Um, But in these first 14 verses or so, you have this scene set up where you have these two armies that are described. It goes all the way through. Paul, uh, Saul does his, his uh, you might could describe him like Peter, kind of uh, uh, 
fast response and not always thinking through things. But Saul is going to justify this sin that he commits. Notice that Samuel does indeed say that you have done foolishly, verse 13, by not keeping the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. He didn't say you have sinned by not listening to me. He said you have sinned by not listening to the living God. So we're going to look at the first seven, excuse me, wow, the first seven verses gives you a description of these armies. It kind of sets the stage for Saul's sin in the first seven verses where you've got the number of soldiers on the uh, the Hebrew side, the side of the people of God. It's uh, totals about um, 3,000 men altogether. You had 2,000 with Saul and then 1,000 with Jonathan. And then when you get into the description of how many of the Philistines had, this is where passages like this, text critics begin to go wild as if the number of the Philistine soldiers is important. Some in verse 5 point to there being 30,000 of this and 6,000 of that. Others just say 3,000 of this and 6,000 of that. The point, though, is not how many. The point is the response of the people of God to the soldiers, the armies of the Philistines. There are at least three descriptions given. Children, think about if you were going into battle and you were afraid, what would you do? The, verse, the first thing that's stated is in verse 6. It says, the Hebrews, they basically go into hiding. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, no reference to the number, the people were distressed. And what they do? They hid in caves. They hid in thickets. They hid in rocks. They hid in holes. And they hid in pits. What the Holy Spirit is ho- hoping you'll see here is that they hid anywhere they could find. Anywhere and everywhere. They were hiding because they were distressed. The second thing comes in verse 7 where you have this description that Saul is in one place while the people are in others. There's division in general. And then in verse 8, the third thing that is mentioned is the people are scattered from Saul. And they're scattered from Samuel by implication as well. This is a mess, isn't it? They are going into battle. They're going to face the Philistines. The king is thankfully leading them, which is what was supposed to be happening, right? Saul is going out with his armies to fight. But there's division. There's chaos in the camp. They're afraid. They're going to fight the Philistines. Yes, children, you remember the Philistines are the people that Goliath came from, where David kills Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. This is one of the many battles the people of God has with them. But... As we begin to, to dive a little bit deeper in, we're going to see that this, these circumstances are what lead to Saul's sin. The people are scattered. They're preparing for battle. Samuel's not there yet. And then Saul does a Saul. And notice how quick his rise and fall is before we get into all these details. Just a couple of chapters ago, his coronation began. And here we are, and the text says at verse 1 that Saul reigned one year, and then he had reigned two years over Israel. And then this happens. Not a very uh, sound king that, like the people were seeking, for sure. But look at this sin of Saul in verses 8 through 14. He gives justifications for it. But what is the sin that he commits? 
It's offering the burnt offerings. Yes, that was wrong. There's commands that only uh, prophets and priests were allowed to do that, but not kings. That is certainly a sin. But when Samuel confronts Saul, it begins to become more clear. As Samuel confronts Saul, it begins to become more clear. And the first thing does, the first thing Saul does is point to the fact that Samuel had not arrived yet. But I don't know if you noticed as we read through the text, it says in verse 8, he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel, and Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. Saul makes his offering, and jump down to verse 10, and it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. He did come. Saul just grew weary of waiting. Saul grew weary of waiting. Samuel had not arrived yet. Saul justifies this sin initially in his mind because Samuel had not arrived yet. Remember what Saul uh, is told that this decision is in verse 13? This is foolishness. But his first excuse is basically to blame it on Samuel, right? You weren't here yet. It's your fault. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. Therefore, I did what I needed to do well, because I hadn't prayed yet, because I hadn't offered supplication to God. I couldn't trust that God would go with us. Remember that scene back earlier in 1 Samuel where the people of God go out to battle, and they get defeated, and they go back, they're like, oop, we forgot the ark. Let's take it with us this time, right? That they could manipulate God in that way. This is a very similar circumstance. and He blames it on the fact that Samuel had not arrived yet. One thing I want to bring up about this, uh, there's, there's a mood here, right? This impatience, right, that has to be addressed. Because impatience leads to sin, right? Impatience causes you to lose your temper. Impatience causes you to uh, do any number of things. But what Matthew Henry does in this text is he begins to connect it to eschatology, a certain view of the end times, right? That what... Uh, Saul is doing could actually be related to how we grow weary of waiting on the coming of Christ. How we have weird time frames and expectations about the coming of Christ, that we anticipate the coming of Christ in the way that Saul anticipated Samuel's coming. And when he doesn't come when we'd like, when he doesn't do the things that we'd like, we take things into our own hands. And just a, a very a technical word, yes, eschatology, but don't imagine that the things that you think about the coming of Christ won't affect your daily decisions. It's going to push you in one direction or another. You notice some people are maybe too aggressive in the way that they live based on the coming of Christ. They're always in a hurry. They're always just thinking that something is about to happen uh, and that they have to act immediately, whether it's foolish or not. I've got to do what's best immediately, all the time, no matter the consequences. Too aggressive. But it can also make you too passive. The world's going to hell in a handbasket anyway. Who cares? Right? Too passive. Neither one of those are the proper way to think. The truth is somewhere in between. But the answer is never Sin. Remember that what Saul is doing is not simply making a bad decision. Saul commits a grievous 
sin. And the first thing he does is he blames it on Samuel. You were late. And he actually wasn't. He arrived as soon as Saul had committed his sin. The middle of verse 12 gives us another thing, a second uh, impulse of Saul's. He says, I have not made supplication yet. An excuse of piety. Godliness made me do it. I was trying to be holy. So I did this thing. Certainly the Lord will be pleased. Imagine the audacity to wave your finger in the face of God to justify a choice because you were just trying to be godly. Now there's some things that are so broad that they're very difficult to apply in specifics, but um, I don't know if you've had this experience, but sometimes you're hearing a sermon or reading the Bible and you, you think that something's not really relevant to you or that you would never do that. Let me encourage you to store things like this in your mind. Because we are all sinners, of course. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But these warnings in Scripture are there because God understands human nature. The example that I, I use a lot is how, uh, scripture, how Paul tells Christian fathers especially not to provoke their children. I used to read that verse before I was a dad and say, why would I do that? Why would I do that? Who intentionally provokes their children? I do it all the time. Do it all the time. And it just happens, right? Never thought I would. Let me encourage you, even in these things like Saul, where you would never blame your sin on someone else. You, you would never do that, right? You would never blame your sin on trying to do something godly. Never do that, right? Store it in the bank. Notice Saul's punishment. Saul's punishment is he falls as fast as he rose, verse 1. But the text tells us in verse 13 that he acted foolishly. Now, lest you be confused about what that means, Samuel speaks even more clearly. He broke the commandment of God. If you look back at chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, so not that long ago, the Lord said through Samuel that if you, the people, fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. The implication is the king is included in this obedience. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Samuel tells Saul, you have broken the covenant of the Lord is the implication. You have violated one of the very most basic roles in your office. You are not a prophet. You are not a priest. You don't take these things into your own hands. Because when you do, great sin has come. And what happens? Let, let me help you here. Don't relate this to the salvation of Saul. That's not the question in the text. So many people want to debate, was Saul saved or was he not? We don't know. He lost his kingdom. 
is what we know because of his sin. That is the point of the text. This is kind of like where God will bring about a um, temporary judgment on a person, but not totally remove them from his, his hand. Right? We're not told that Saul was put to death or anything like that. He's just told that he's going to lose his kingdom. He lost his kingdom. And the rest of verse 14 seems to tell us that this new king is coming. Maybe you heard the echoes of the Lord Jesus Christ, but you also hear the echoes of David. Because remember that David is called the very thing in verse 14 that Saul is not. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. David is called that very thing several times in the Scriptures. Of course, it points ultimately to the Lord Jesus, but it's true of David in a sense as well. And some, in looking at this text, as I told you, there's a lot of disagreement over what the sin of Saul was. Well, first of all, he stepped out of line. Kings were not supposed to do what he did, period. He made the sacrifices himself, and that was not to be done. He was told to wait on Samuel, because Samuel had the responsibility and the authority to do that. But he blamed it on Samuel. He blamed his sin on Samuel. He blamed his sin on God, basically. Like, God needed me to pray to him. I needed to pray to God. But some will say that Saul's sin was pragmatism. Now, there's a reason I bring this up. Maybe you don't know what pragmatism is. It's basically the practice of doing what is practical and what is easiest all the time, no matter what. right? Where you make a practice of always doing the easy thing, rather than the right thing, or rather than the good thing. Now, again, some say that Saul's sin was pragmatism. He needed to do this. It was easier to do it than to wait, and it drove him to this decision, and Samuel's just you know, being over the top. But what this can do is adopting this idea that pragmatism is sinful. It can make you be overly scrupulous. It can make you be like over the top, not just with yourself, but but with others. We are told what Saul's reasons were. We are told that God's judgment is not based on pragmatism because pragmatism is not always sinful. Thanks be to God in raising children that pragmatism is not always sinful. Sometimes you just have to do and can only do what's easiest. You don't have the time to do everything that is uh, always best. Sometimes you have to choose what is good because you can't really do what's best. That's pragmatism, and that's okay. Pragmatism is not Saul's sin. Pragmatism is not even always sinful. Let me use, I'm trying to think of a a decent example here where you could really get the implications of it. All right, let's use one like this. In parenting, spare the rod, spoil the child, right? Some may adopt this practice to such a degree that they think that every single discipline, disciplinary moment of the child must be done as quick as possible with the rod. No matter the consequences, right? No matter what other people might think about it. Um, I've heard a story even in uh, this church that in the past that there have been some interesting choices of decision, even or choices of discipline, even during worship services, right? 
spare the rod, spoil the child. Try not to spare the rod. Try not to spoil my child, right? Don't want to be pragmatic. Don't want to do what's easiest. Don't want to do the smart thing in the moment. Want to obey God. See that, that same mindset, how that runs you into what Saul does, right? It's a danger. We have to have this flexibility in applying the commandments of God because God doesn't give us commandments for every single situation. And all that to say that in Samuel's confrontation with Saul, the point is that he sinned in doing this. It wasn't just bad because Saul didn't know how to do the sacrifices. Maybe he did. It wasn't just bad because he um, had people scattering from him, right? He's trying to save his own behind. He's trying to draw the people back. He's trying to make sure God is on his side. But his sin is still there, and there are consequences. Even though he technically did what ought to be done in a broad sense, there are consequences. So I want to say a few things about sin in closing. Sin is foolishness. Sin is foolishness. The Proverbs say that sin is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod drives it out. Right? I know it feels like I'm talking a lot about discipline, but... It's just a point about sin being in the heart. It has to be driven out. You have to teach your children. You have to inform yourself that sin is not just a bad choice. Sin is foolishness. Sin is not a calling. Sin is not a small thing. As I said earlier from the catechism, it's any Want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Yes, that's our technical definition. But you have to understand that when you choose sin, you are choosing foolishness. Who wants to be a fool? I don't know anybody who wants to be a fool. But we sin all the time. We justify it. Just like Saul did. Sin is... Uh, you, could, you could have a list of sins, couldn't you, if you wanted to do that? The, the Lord listed several sins in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 that we read from earlier. Fornication. It is a sin. Probably won't be long before you get arrested or threatened for saying that out loud. Idolatry is a sin. It's not a matter of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Opinion, right? Idolatry is sinful. Adultery is sinful. Being effeminate. Men, being effeminate is sinful. Sodomy, or as they call it, being gay, is sinful. Stealing is sinful. Coveting is sinful. Being drunk Not just a drunkard, but being drunk is sinful. Reviling, not knowing when to shut your mouth, is sinful. Extortion, stealing, manipulating, all those things, they are sinful. And you know what the Bible says about those things? You will not inherit the kingdom of God if that is your practice of life. Period. But the message to the church, such were some of you not are were such were some of you but you were washed 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All those things are sinful. All the things that violate God's law are sinful. Saul sinned. And you have to see as a Christian when you are in sin as well. Because there's a corner of your heart that the flesh, the world, and the devil are always fighting for that will lead you to do the very same thing that Saul did and blame someone else or even have the audacity to blame God. Friends, the coming of Christ, just like the coming of Samuel, may seem delayed. But let me tell you, the seventh day is not over yet. He'll come before, excuse me, he'll come at the very end of that day. He will come not a moment before or after he's supposed to, but he's coming. And remember, as you live, to have a clear definition of sin, this will only help you. There are books on books on books written on sin. If you want to make a study of it, you can do it. But don't be those who waffle on sin. Don't be those who quibble with God. Because you are those who have been washed. You are those who have been sanctified. And you are those who have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Let's pray.